without reading scripture here because I'll be dealing with it in the uh, sermon. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would uh, work in us and uh, continue to make us into the people you want us to be. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, I've got bits and pieces here. Again, it's number nine, and I uh, have four topics I want to cover. The first two topics are maybe more interesting to listen to, but they're not as important as the last two. The last two are very important. I hope to get through all four of them. I'll start now. Uh, Number one, a company is people. A company is people who can do right or wrong. Companies are owned and run by people. They are money-making enterprises. Some are small one business. Others are multinational, filled with souls, working to increase its prosperity. In all instances... They are owned and run by people. Never forget that. These people make decisions. Moral decisions, immoral decisions, good decisions, bad decisions, Christian decisions, non-Christian decisions, heaven-bound and hell-bound. The people come from homes, households. They're like us. People who invest their thoughts and activities to serve God, hopefully, through the company they work for. They should want their work to matter as they also make money for their households. You and I know that if we build our homes, if we run our homes selfishly and godlessly, that God will oppose us. He will oppose us for such bad and sinful behavior. The first six chapters of Genesis provide examples on every page that this is how he operates. The fall with God's curses. God's judgment of Cain hating his brother and then his judgment of him for killing his brother. The unbearable increase of wickedness and God's decision to wipe out humanity and start over with Noah. God opposes whole households when they act against him. If there is gossip in the home or a refusal to tithe, too much drink, you quit going to church, God opposes you in these things. And that spills over the cup onto your family members. 
by correlation, by correlation, God opposes a company filled with such people too. I tell you, rich business owner, there is not enough money in the world to protect you from God once you've begun to oppose him with your rebellion. I would not want to be in the shoes of some of these companies and their workers who have chosen to side with wickedness in effort, in effort to promote some cause a bad cause, or gain customer approval, I don't care what the motive is. The warning of the Apostle James in the first century comes to mind. It went like this, James 5, beginning in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. If your company sides against God, sides, takes a side against God, what should you do? I suggest you do something to get out of harm's way. We have to scratch our heads over issues going on in the world. It's important. But this boils down pretty easily to the challenge Joshua extended to his kinsmen. You remember what the challenge was that Joshua extended? He said, now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think a company and its people need to make sure they honor God with their businesses. This means a company should never proclaim their commitment to support some godless behavior. Employees, listen, employees should surely consider leaving such a company one that makes anti-Christian proclamations. One, for example, who intends to use company proceeds to transport employees across, across state lines, if necessary, to abort their preborn child. How do you work for a company like that all of a sudden? 
Jim. Your car- caramel frappuccino. Thanks for killing the thanks for killing the preborn. It's one thing for someone to work for a company and then go home or own a company and then go home and support abortion. That's one thing. It's despicable, but that's, that's different. It's quite another for the company to pursue it as a business expense. I'd hate to think my labor helped build a company aiding and abetting child killing. Does that not put some blood on my hands? Eventually? I mean, if I do nothing about it, does not, does not now blood go on my hands? as an employee. And I get it. It takes some time. You work that out. But if you do nothing whatsoever and keep on keeping on, remember, a company is made up of living and breathing people. That's all it is. Living and breathing people from various households And if your household, okay, were to set aside in the monthly budget money to support anti-Christian behavior, does not the entire household suffer the repercussions and potential blood guilt of something like that? Sure it does. Sure it does. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. Yikes. Now granted, some companies exist to sell evil. There is an entire pornography industry and sex workers and abortion and euthanasia doctors. There are false religions and cults, there are swindlers and charlatans, hired killers, and the like. There is a lot of money to be made in sin and crime. I'm not talking about those companies. That's a foregone conclusion that God is against them. I'm referring to companies that are offering good and legitimate products and services, but now have decided they must promote ungodly things as part of their company's purpose. I'm referring to companies like professional sports teams and and healthcare conglomerates who corrupt society. They corrupt society by dignifying sexual deviancy. Where the promotion of the LGBTQ plus has become a company goal all of a sudden like some brazen branding against God. I'm glad for athletes and other employees who take stands against the company's wishes here. They should, they ought to, they need to. And I think it must be very difficult for them to work in an industry that is becoming increasingly hostile to God. What is the athlete's option for employment after his years of training? Or the doctors, for that matter? 
No, it's, no, it's not permissible to go along to get along. That's not permissible. That is not one of the commandments. It's the biggest reason that I could not, after graduation, go and teach in the government schools. I couldn't do it. I could not teach things that are untrue and be forced to conceal what is true for a paycheck. A company is not nameless and faceless, but that's how we've begun to think, isn't it? You can't do much about it, really. It's the corporate policy. Wrong. It's some person's policy. Or, or a group of them together got together and decided this was going to be policy. It doesn't just happen. He has a name. And they have faces. Don't think you're going to become unaccountable. People are accountable. No company gets a pass with God. He cares too much. He goes after people. You don't want to be caught in those crosshairs. Does this come as a shock? It shouldn't. Where have we been? You have a name and so do I. No, we know we are accountable. Then so is GAPA Security Solutions or Wind and Unwind or Tractor Supply or Starbucks or the Milwaukee Brewers or Aurora Health. And certainly, I'm not talking about being unable, okay? I'm not talking about being unable to work along sinners. Nor am I talking about refusing to buy from a company who has got sinners working in it. Please. Both would be impossible. So I understand that you can buy ice cream from a company though you disagree with the lifestyles of their owners in private. But that is different from the company itself advertising against the commands of God. Number two. Pornography Pornography is the small itch that grows until you've scratched it raw and it's spread all over your body. Exodus 20, 14 is the commandment that says you shall not commit adultery. It's loaded with meaning. Jesus explained more thoroughly to us in Matthew 5, 27 through 30. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members 
than that your whole body go into hell. Sex and uh, sexual desire is only permitted between a husband and wife. That's it. Sex and sexual desire is only permitted between a husband and wife. It's a blast. It's a wonderful thing that God gave mankind. Yet, sex outside of the marriage covenant and sexual desires beyond your spouse is called sin. This means premarital sexual activity, adultery, same-sex antics, flirtatious musings, intentionally provocative dress, sexual play with other creatures, pedophilia, rape, etc., are all out of bounds. They are off-limits and should be forsaken. And the thing is, it does not matter whether you, whether you physically perform the activity or just think about it for a period of time. According to Jesus, even the looking with lustful intent is to break the command. Further, the person you lust after may not know it. It may be your little secret. Nonetheless, God forbids you to think of her. He forbids you to think of her or him or it like that. He did not make that person for your sexual pleasure, even if it's the pleasure going on in your mind. So the person you lust after should not be someone you know, and it should not be someone you don't know. Very often we can be tempted by people in a movie, right? Or in some, or some online person. Sometimes they offer themselves to be alluring. They want you to want them. Sometimes they don't. To the hungry man, however, all food begins to look good. Lust fueled by pornography, can be overcome. The one caught in the sin doesn't have any clue how that can happen. Completely chained to it. Or so it seems. I believe there is always a small window of opportunity when you first think on someone or something. There's that small window of opportunity to make a choice right then as to whether you will indulge in lust or flee from it. The window of time is immediate. Uh, a A tear out and throw it from you moment which demands a quick and prayerful choice. The Apostle Paul tells us to flee from sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians 6. He explains later on in that letter that no temptation has 
overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, he says, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Well, that's good news. I think sometimes the temptation is the challenge, right? And very often you give into temptation long before you thought you did, okay? You give into the temptation, that window is opened long before you thought. The window was way back there. That was your moment to choose. And when you just woke up your computer screen by wiggling the mouse, it didn't just happen then. The temptation was back here. It probably is the thing that brought you to your computer or whatever growing up. In my day, it was the Playboy and Penthouse magazines that you could find. pretty regularly with grown men who you should have been able to respect. Lust is strong, and it can tether your mind when you choose badly. Temptation repeats frequently, and sooner and sooner, It's easy once you give yourself permission to dwell on someone or something and prolong your sexual thoughts. Maybe King David's window, King David, maybe his window of opportunity to choose correctly was when he spotted the half-clad woman next door bathing. Maybe it happened earlier. And And I... You don't blame David for seeing something. You cannot help seeing some things and thinking about what it is you've just seen. That's not lust. That's temptation, perhaps, for you, but that's not lust. But in that moment, David hovered. He hovered. He invested himself from his post looking down at Bathsheba while she bathed. He was married. She was married. His lust led him to contrive an opportunity, then full physical adultery, which led to shame and cover-up and murder. She was not innocent either not a victim, but it was not about her. Joseph, on the other hand, of the 12 sons of Jacob, had Potiphar's wife full out seduce him and grope for him and want him. He had a window of opportunity to make a choice, and he jumped out of it. Joseph fled. He left only his coat in her clutches. I tell you what, that's a man. That's a man who's got it figured out. 
How many of us, if that kind of woman were groping and clutching after us, would flee? I hope every one of us. I doubt it. God help us. I've advised men to do two things based on personal experience. First, when the thought comes to you, the temptation, okay? You haven't given in to great lust. The temptation comes, a thought comes to you. You hesitate. You teeter. At that moment, say to God, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. You just say it to him right away. You got to say it a couple times, you ask him a couple times. And then second, I suggest you whisper audibly, audibly or at least so your lips are moving because Satan is not omniscient and he and his devils are not able to be everywhere at all times. But if they're involved in that temptation, you want them to hear you or read your lips saying, get behind me, Satan. In, in those, you're recognizing three things. You're recognizing the window of decision-making, the God who strengthens in time of need, and the tempter, and the tempter who would love to eat you for lunch. Okay, now the better ones. Three. When it comes to blessing the name of the Lord, it can only happen... When it comes to blessing the name of the Lord, it can only happen when you quit focusing on the how and begin to focus on the who. I read earlier, and I'll read it again, from Psalm 145. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Don't glaze over here. I glaze over when I read this kind of stuff normally. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I read this. I was reading Psalm 145, and I kept thinking, how? How can I feel this way, like David, right? It almost seems unrealistic to me, like he's faking it or something. Bless the name of the Lord forever and ever? As David says here, I don't know how he can feel that kind of joy so often about God. Every day, he says, I I bless you and praise your name. I can't work up that kind of emotion. I brought it up at the council meeting. I feel like I... I can't relate, I said. What did David have in him that that this was his expression? Then I'm sitting in my morning prayer time, and I'm trying to do this thing, to bless his name forever and ever, to bless his name today. Because I think it's right. It's got to be right. I got to be wrong. So I'm trying to bless the name of the Lord And I think God showed me, look, what's in the name, Lord, that's 
that David says he's blessing. He's saying he's blessing the name of the Lord forever and ever. What's in the name Lord that David says he's blessing? It's written in verse 3 there with capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all capital. What does that mean? Well, I thought about this. When the Lord, the word Lord is found in all capitals, it's representing his actual name, Yahweh, which they didn't want to put in the scripture, so they would capitalize L-O-R-D. Yahweh means I am. I am who I am. It means he's self-existent. The eternal one. It is what God calls himself to Moses at the burning bush and to Abraham near the oaks of Mamre and at the beginning of the creation in many, many other places. Lord. Lord identifies him. It is his label. Like, like we have names that, that identify us, okay? So Brian Ball or Sharon Krieger Ashley Crock. When we hear the name, we think about the person. When at a funeral, and the person's only partially there in, in his body, and his or her soul has gone to be with the Lord, we still refer to that person by name, Don Middlestat. And if I say the name Don Middlestat right now, many of you have a thought in your mind about who Don Middlestat was what he was like, what he looked like. But we use their name throughout the service because we're thinking of them. Ralph was a great guy. I remember when Ralph took me fishing. Ralph loved his grandkids and so forth. We hear the name. We think of the person. And so, Lord... Yahweh, I am, is God's name. It should make us think certain things about him. I want to read to you Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 through 15. It says, Then Moses said to God, If, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, capital L, capital O, R, D. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So I began to think about God according to his name. He is the one who is. I am who I am. He, he's not, he doesn't come from something else. He's not derived from something or someone else. He has always been. Self 
existing by his own power. He just exists. And as I was thinking about this, I looked out at the farm field and the horizon beyond it, and I thought, no one else can say this. Everything else exists because something was before it. Something gave it its start, crops and trees, you, me, the land, none of, none have existed forever. None are self-existing. They are all derived. They come from a specific source. Only the Lord is not derived. He is the source of all created things. And the theological, there's a theological word, aseity, which tries to capture that idea. God was before the beginning. He alone always is. And so, everything I was looking at came from him. I was now getting a sense of who David was blessing and why. Blessing the name of the Lord is not so much a question of how as it is a question of who. The how, it kind of comes natural when you begin to reflect on the who. So, I started to think about how I was derived. The one who has always been made me. And this was spellbinding. And it helped me get through a little patch I was in. It helped me to think about my life, how I wanted really to control things. But in that moment, I realized I control little or nothing. And actually, only those things God, God puts, the Lord puts, under my control. Indeed, as Paul says, he is the only potentate. No, I cannot control some things at all, as I'd certainly like to. The thoughts and motives of people I want to control those things. But those are secret things. I can't touch that. And it's unfair of me to even try, which I also do. I try to control these untouchable things in order to secure for me a safe, and comfortable world. I want to be safe. I want to be comfortable. How can I be if I can't control what other people are thinking? Only God gets to have that. He controls the secret things. 
I am derived actually for his purposes and not the other way around. It's the basic lesson, I think, of that serenity prayer my mom used to say, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. The courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. I also thought, as a derived being, I've got to trust myself to God who may want me to suffer pain based upon the decisions of others, based upon the secrets of others. It certainly was his path for Paul. Finally, I concluded, I've already suffered from the sinful decisions of others. I was scarred young. And Yahweh planted that in my life. And if it's his pleasure that I cannot control those things I want to control, then I need to trust him as the one who can. Number four, God chooses to use imperfect men to speak his word to his people. There were very few to whom God spoke directly. He does not operate that way, typically. He has always chosen to use jars of clay, feeble humans to preach and teach his word. Apart from reading the scripture, you and I are only ever going to get God's word taught by other people's mouths, other people's mouths. God speaks to us through the mouths of people. He's, John Calvin says, as a workman uses a tool to do his work, that's what God chooses to do, to use people. So we get God's will not directly from heaven, but through the agency of the human tongue. And it's not easy for us to receive it that way. Did you hear that? It's not easy for us to receive it that way through a person. Why not? Well, mainly for two reasons. The first is that men are finite. They easily, easily come up short in their studies. Uh, we can easily disrespect them intellectually. They don't know all things, not even all Bible things. Nobody does. And it's not necessarily a knock on the teacher, although they could be blamed for lack of study, yes. Lack of initiative, yes. It's, it's more the reality of being finite. God alone is omniscient, all-knowing. We aren't. So that's one reason it's hard to receive God's word through a man. The second reason it's difficult to receive God's will through the human tongue is because men are sinners. We see their faults over time. 
They do not live up to God's word, and there is a good possibility that they've twisted his word as well. So we distrust them because we don't completely respect them. Which is a safety check, I think. It's not without merit, okay, to remember that you will always be drinking from mud puddles. You just try to find the cleanest and the deepest. That's what I recommend. And it might not be here. So read on the side or listen to some podcasts. Calvin writes this. I've been reading in the Institutes lately. He says, When a puny man, but when a puny man risen from the dust speaks in God's name, at this point we best evidence our piety and obedience toward God if we show ourselves teachable toward his minister, although he excels us in nothing. I don't know, sometimes he writes, you got a puny guy, okay, risen from the dust, your best advice is to listen, be obedient to God, show yourself teachable to that person, even if he's not as good as you. So here's a question for you. Is it possible for you to listen to the worst of sinners and still believe the truth? if they've spoken it. You know how you can be. I know how I am. I can't believe he did that. Write him off. I don't want to ever listen to this person again. I ask because I've lost confidence in some teachers that I read or listened to in my past. They fell into sin, and for some reason, I determined to write them off as if the things they'd previously taught were untrue or something. But must I have complete confidence in the teacher in order to learn from him? Aren't we all prone to sin? I'll guarantee you. Well, I don't even need to guarantee you. You know you're looking at a sinner. Does it make me a hypocrite to disregard truth because of who shared it? I think so, you sinner. What if they've changed? And in either case, who am I to reject the truth of God's word because it was served to me from a vessel I've become displeased with? It's a question of the teacher versus the thing they taught. This doesn't mean that everyone should be a teacher. It, does, it, it also does not mean that a church leader can sin with impunity. They should be removed, potentially, from office. Certainly, there are situations for that. Nevertheless, we don't, we don't get God speaking to us in direct fashion as Moses burning bush or Moses in the smoky thunderous mountain where he received the Ten Commandments or in the tabernacle tent when no one dared to go near it. He comes out glowing. We don't get God speaking to us that way. 
Instead, God has chosen, He has chosen to communicate His will through feeble, sinful, puny men. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would indeed work in us, that we might be better receivers of your truth, that we might be better obeyers in this life, that we'd make hard decisions when you've given us hard decisions to make, and that we would be uh, knowing our place before the God who's always been. You exist, and we love you and praise your name. Amen.